This call is being recorded. Hello, and welcome to Bard MBA's first Sustainable Business Fridays of the 2015 to 16 school year. My name is Stephanie Milbergs, and I'm Assistant Director of the Bard MBA program. We are so excited to have Manoj Fenelin, Director of Foresight and Innovation at PepsiCo, on our show today. Before turning over the mic to Amy Kalfa, a second year Bard MBA student, to lead what I know will be a dynamic and insightful interview, I want to provide some background about the Bard MBA in sustainability. We are one of a few programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into our curriculum from the ground up. We are a low residency program where part of our courses are taught online and the other portion are taught over long weekend residencies in New York City. We are a deeply experiential program with first year students partaking in a course called NYC Lab, where they work on real world sustainability challenges for clients. In recent years, some clients have included UBS, Unilever, Lockheed Martin, Con Ed Solutions, and Inward Point, a growing startup. Thank you all so much for joining us today. Please do mute your phones and headsets at this time to reduce the chance of feedback during this call. I will now turn over the conversation to Amy, who will introduce Manoj. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Stephanie. Well, Manoj Fenelon believes that in a world uh, help ask good questions, catalyze, and channel collective imagination. He has a graduate degree in the study of emotion and has absorbed lessons from experiences across advertising, academia, market research, business strategy, insights, and innovation. Manoj has a great job title. He's the Director of Foresight and Innovation at PepsiCo. He's also a First Mover Fellow at the Aspen Institute. Manoj believes that business, oriented purposefully, can be a net asset to society. Manoj, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to learning about how you're applying the study of emotion to helping businesses achieve that purposeful orientation. Let's begin by hearing some more about your background. What led up to your research and, and how your path has taken you into the business and academic world? Thank you, Amy, and thank you, Stephanie, as well, and to the BARD community in general for having me on. I'm really looking forward to this conversation because I think it's going to take us to a lot of interesting places, and I'm particularly looking forward to the questions we get back from all our listeners. My background, I'm, I'll try and do it very quickly so as to potentially set up some questions for you, Amy. First, education. I, I am what Noam Chomsky would rightfully, in my opinion, call a survivor of that trauma called education, by which I mean I did really well at school when I was growing up, but I felt very little joy in the whole experience, which then took me to college where I like to say, this was back in India at an institution called the Birla Institute for Technology and Science. I got a first-rate education there. It just wasn't in the classroom, which struck me a lot about education in general. Then I moved on to my first job as an advertising copywriter for a large multinational in India. And I thought I was going to be, if not a calling, at least a good chunk of my life in advertising. I'd like to write. I fancied myself as a creative person. And here was this industry that at least purported to take care of people like me and provide them with a good, good job and enough fulfillment in, in the directions they desired. Turned out about nine months into my first job, 
I had a chance to listen to someone who was very high up in the organization who was retiring as a seasoned advertising professional who'd been in the field for about 50 years. And I'm going to paraphrase a snippet of his speech, which was pretty hard-hitting. And I apologize in advance uh, if the language is objectionable to some people. It shouldn't be, I think, in this context. So what he had to say about advertising in general was he said, the best of us are mercenaries, the worst of us are whores. And I don't think he meant it, meant it in a gendered way. He was addressing both both sexes, if you will. And he ended by saying, let's not pretend to be anything else, shall we? And it left a deep impression in me. I don't know if I understood all of what he was trying to get at in that, in that phrase, but it left an impression on me, so much of an impression that I ended up quitting my job and was puzzled about where, where to go in the future. So like most people in my cohort at that time in India, was, Let, let's go abroad. That's, that's where the horizon is, abroad, which was a very vague place at that time. Long story short, I ended up at the University of Connecticut for graduate school, where I met one of the most profound influences on my life, my graduate advisor, Professor Ross Buck. And I, again, I'm going to, I'm going to splice it and move forward a little bit. My graduate career turned out to be, uh, can be summed up in a phrase. I was doing interdisciplinary work at a time when interdisciplinary stuff was not yet fashionable. So I've, I've developed this knack over time of arriving at places before a lot of other people, which, which sounds cool in theory, but is also very hard to navigate in practice. So that was my grad school experience. I did study motion from a very multidisciplinary perspective involving both the communication theories and mass media theories of the department that I was a part of, but also doing a lot of ancillary coursework in social psychology and neuroscience and evolutionary biology as well. And I wasn't allowed to finish my PhD. And this is probably the only point of agreement I will have with Henry Kissinger when he was talking about academic politics. I think he had this to say that the politics in departments are especially vicious precisely because the stakes are so low. And so from the grad school experience, I, I arrived in the corporate world as a refugee of sorts, not knowing what to do and just trying to keep my immigration status. And about a dozen years on, I find myself still in this world. I think Amy has a question actually in her outline that might allow me to expand more, so I'll just stop here for now. Wow, well, we have some similar background. I actually have a degree in semiotics, which most people have never heard of, but um, very disillusioning in terms of where you go from there because you kind of, it, how mercenary the advertising world is and then what's next. Um, which brings us to the title of today's podcast, is Gospel of Doubt. And Minoj, this was the theme that you suggested and um, it, it is your theme of training people to ask good questions. So I'm going to start off by asking you, what's a good question? <laughs> uh, Amy's putting me on the spot right away. I'm going to enjoy this, I think. Uh, after, after I came up with this topic, I looked at it and went, wow, that's, that's kind of an unfortunate acronym. It spells out God. I don't want people thinking I have a God complex or something like that. In fact, I have quite the opposite. Um, let, me, let me answer you, Amy, by bracketing this, this question of what is a good question with two quotes. After all, we all stand on the shoulders of giants who've come before us and said all sorts of profound things. One is from Confucius, and he says, or he said, the person 
He said the man, but we all know what he meant. The person who asks a question is a fool for a minute. The person who does not ask is a fool for life. So that's, that's one quote. The other one is from a homegrown uh, author, Mark Twain. And he said, it ain't what we don't know that gets us into trouble. It's what we know for sure, but just ain't so. And I think those two quotes sort of capture this obsession of mine, I'll own up to it, with asking good questions. One is around this virtue of humility. I think it's much needed in this world. I see so much of progress being tied to very egocentric views around the world and what progress means and for whom. So I think asking good questions is a show of humility. And it turns out, at least in my adult experience, it's a very rare skill. I'm often surprised, those of you who have young children will relate to this, I'm often surprised when I'm hanging out with my friends and their children just how good kids are at asking questions and how much of that art, if I could call it that, has been lost in our adult lives. And I have a couple of villains to finger uh, for why it hasn't been lost, but that's a different interview. So humility is one virtue that backgrounds my uh, focus on asking good questions. And the second one, which might be more pertinent to the topic of this interview, is around questioning assumptions, which is especially important in times of transitions like the world, like the world we live in now, I think. I find that uh, a lot of the paradigms on which the world runs today are outdated. There's a, there's a simmering recognition of that. But there's not enough people asking the questions or expressing their doubts. And before I finish, Amy, I'd also like to add that this theme of gospel of doubt is addressed to a specific group of people. I view them as the majority, and people might have other opinions. If, uh, if anybody's familiar with the theory, you can look it up very easily. It's called the spiral of silence. And it was uh, put forward by a German social scientist, Elizabeth von Neumann. And she talks about, you know, the, the conflicts that we have are rarely between the two people who express strong points of view. They tend to be the minorities on either side. And the critical audience that makes a difference with regards to what actions we take on, based on the debates that we have is the other people in the middle who haven't decided. I mean, this manifests in all sorts of ways. You have... The, the swing voters in elections, you have silent majorities on every topic, I think. And this gospel of doubt is sort of as a theme or as an exhortation is addressed to them. I think, and other people have expressed this more eloquently, but I'm fascinated by what is the nature of evil. And in my personal life, this is an evolving topic for sure, but where I am right now is with the understanding that there is evil in the world, it's not because there are bad people. Of course there are bad people. But that's not the reason why there is evil in the world. I think there is evil in the world because not enough good people are doing much about it. So this idea of the gospel of doubt and asking people to question more or express their doubts is with that framing in mind. I think transformation, which is something that everybody on this call is interested in and participating in, cannot be full unless people start voicing their doubts, Sorry, which is an, which is an effect which is, in effect, really voicing their values. Um, there's somebody on the line that needs to mute their phone, please. <laughs> um, you know, so I'm going to just ask you a follow-up to that question, which is really not about um, sustainable business, but I, I think it's a fascinating concept, what you're describing as the spiral of silence and getting people to ask questions. So, you know, I'm thinking in big terms like the Holocaust and other, you know, current tragedies that are going on in the world. Do you, do you have thoughts on how to get people to, to speak up and take action and ask those questions who are not on one extreme or the other? 
I do have thoughts. Um, I don't know if they're profound enough to share. Other people might very well have better thoughts. I think one, for example, is um, atomization in society. The fact that we're so disconnected socially, despite all of the immense technologies that prefer to connect us socially, I think people are growing more and more disconnected on a personal level. I think that's one point of leverage or place of intervention, for example. How do we transform these forums that we used to have, people just getting together over dinner parties and talking about the state of the world. And we've gotten to a point, at least in this society, I can't generalize to the rest of the world because those traditions are alive and well in some places, where you hear commonly at social gatherings, oh, politics is a conversation to be avoided. Um, I, think, I think sort of social norms like that, and all of us can guess where those norms come from and have different opinions, but the fact that these norms are there, and by and large, people are dear to that. I think sort of trying to figure out ways to get over that or finding people uh, or circles in which those norms don't apply, where people are willing to talk about the state of the world and politics and discuss issues that matter to us all, that might be one avenue, for example. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I think um, we should encourage people to break those social norms. And um, I guess, um, you know, people who are focused on sustainable business are, are really working on having those kinds of challenging conversations with business people um, and every day in our lives. So before we continue with that line of questioning, I just want to address something that you and I emailed back and forth about, and that is, um, you know, I want to ask you to speak about the tension that you experience between representing yourself as a citizen beyond your day job and then your obligation to represent the company, like, for example, in this interview, because so, that will set the tone for how we proceed going forward. Aha. Thanks for bringing that up, Amy. It gives me a chance to clarify something that could get lost in the, in the framing, I think, which is I am, I am part of this interview and part of this audience or this forum. As, as an employee of PepsiCo, I can't run away from that. It, it is part of the reason why I'm here. At the same time, I have thoughts and feelings and points of view that are monoge, that don't necessarily reflect my association with PepsiCo. So that, that's one layer of it. The second one, which I want to clarify, is I'm not here as an official spokesperson for the company. And I'll expand that on a little bit. I think when you talk about the tension, at, this, at the end of this answer, I hope I can offer people a new metaphor or a different metaphor to think about this. So there are two points of entry, if you ask me, into this whole topic of what is this tension. From the company's perspective, it's not a simple question, but the question is basically, what is a representative of the company, however official in, in a spokesperson's capacity, authorized to say or not at, at what forum? Frankly, that's a question that doesn't interest me very much. We have professionals who work day in and day out navigating those sorts of topics within the company. So from a personal point of view, that question is real for me, but it doesn't interest me very much. What interests me more, from my point of view, has been the the question of how can I use my association or partnership with PepsiCo as a stage or a platform to make an impact on the world as a, as a private citizen and a human being who's employed at this company. So that, that's the question I'm very interested in. So the, the point that I was getting to earlier was I've come to see this less as an oppositional tension between people on the same playing field who somehow have opposite points of view. 
I've come to see this as a tension that's created out of having different layers or levels of awareness or consciousness, if you will. And this, I'm, I'm borrowing terminology from readings that I, I'm sure this audience is very familiar with, which comes from the work that Otto Scharmer and Peter Senge and people like that have been doing. Work comes out of the Presencing Institute. And just to, just to summarize it for people who aren't familiar with that argument, they talk about where real change comes from. And their argument is that change comes from transforming the level of consciousness of people that operate within the system. So yes, this is not to say that we shouldn't focus on company policies or the policy realm and science and technology and all of that. But I think their, their question is, if people aren't experiencing a change of heart or somehow a journey to a different level of consciousness about what they do, none of the other stuff is really going to matter. And I see enough evidence of that playing out in a lot of realms where change has been attempted, but for various reasons it isn't successful. And it keeps coming back to this, what is the level of consciousness of people within the system or attempting this change? So when I, when I talk about the tension, the tensions that I run into the company are dealing with people who are not at the same level of consciousness. And I, and I don't mean this to be... Uh, a sort of like, you know, class difference or Im or implying any sort of judgment. It's it's just a facet of reality. Some people operate in a very different level of consciousness within the same system, within the same company, often within the same departments. And this leads me to talk very briefly about my evolution, which could be an extended coda to the background description that I gave, which is my evolution within the company. I've seen myself go from when I entered the company as a purely you know, seeing, seeing my partnership with the company as one of a purely contractual labor thing. You know, we've signed a contract, you've hired me to do X and Y, which is spelt out in my job description, and in return I owe you this as spelt out by the rules of engagement for company employees, and that's that. Yeah? Since then I've moved on to, well, this is, this is not just work in that sense, but it's a, it's a chance to grow myself professionally, which, which, you know, which is not a surprising thought. A lot of people you work that way. That takes it out of the contractual realm a little bit. You involve notions of personal growth and how is the company helping you with that or not, et cetera, et cetera. Where I am right now, I think, is in, is in a view that's percolating throughout the business world in the sense that the contract between employees in the company or between partners in the company is, needs to be renegotiated in a legal sense, but it's already being renegotiated on a, on a human level to be one of a synchrony of purposes and aims, right? So it's almost like I'm not looking for a job right now. I'm looking to join a movement. And movements don't necessarily have to be led by corporate actors, but they can be. And I think that's, that's the cusp of the interesting world that we're entering. And will corporations be the champions of a movement towards something? Not necessarily to own that, but to bring along masses of people with the resources and capabilities that they have. Which is... And going back to the tension, just to close that off, which is a view that I have, lots of other people share across companies, but it's not a majority view. So that still creates tensions in the day-to-day -day when I'm trying to negotiate. Where do I appear? What do I say? And, and I will finish by saying, there's not really a dispute in terms of, you know, if you look at the overall aims, let's say I'm a representative of the company, I understand my responsibilities and obligations pretty well. I would voice them as saying, don't reveal any confidential information. That's, that's sort of a given. And secondly, represent the company well. 
Now, the few cases where I've had disagreements, it's been around the meaning of well. Not to get very Bill Clinton about this, but you could ask, like, what is the meaning of well? And that's where I think very different notions of what it means to represent a company well are playing out. Um, just to give you a pressy version of that, there's one approach that's still stuck in the 20th century, in my view, which is around the secrecy and managing public opinion. There's another view that's emerging, of which I hope to be a spokesperson or at the vanguard, which is one of radical trust and transparency. And they're both oriented towards the same goals about representing the company really well. One takes a very, quote-unquote, corporate approach. The other takes a very, quote-unquote, human approach. Which is really, you know, the topic of our conversation in many ways, this idea of radical trust and transparency. I think that's a fascinating concept and part of the reason why you and I are speaking today because for those listeners who don't know me, um, I should disclose that in addition to being a BARD MBA in sustainability candidate, I'm also the filmmaker behind the documentary Two Angry Moms, which is a film that is quite critical of the soda and junk food industry. Um, and Minoj, you've been gracious enough to trust me and I, I think um, that really brings us to your concept of designing from trust. And maybe you can give us some specific examples and, and help me imagine how that might apply to the beverage industry. First of all, Amy, thank you for reciprocating that trust. In fact, I think you may have started this off, and I feel very, felt very comfortable. By the way, for the, for the people who are listening, I'm not the first one at PepsiCo to trust Amy or people of her ilk. Amy told me this fascinating anecdote when I first met her about having been uh, on the receiving end of a personal phone call from my CEO, Indra Nui, asking her to be on the board. So, Amy, maybe you can tell that story when, when we have a a couple of minutes in between. But to get to your question about designing from trust, um, just to elucidate that principle, I will give you a beautiful example, I think, and also tell people about some resources where you can find out more. This story is about a Brazilian company called Semco, S-E-M-C-O, led by a guy now, although I think he would object to the label leader or being led, uh, called Ricardo Semler who's all over YouTube, for example, so you can easily Google. He's given a couple of TED Talks and other talks of that nature. He's also written a couple of best-selling books. One of them is called Maverick, and the other one's called Seven Day Weekend. Um, and Semco's achievements, uh, the first question I get is, well, what does Semco do? Turns out that's not the point. That hasn't been the point of the company for about 20 years. The point has been, how do we do it? So I'll just give you a few details to talk about how Ricardo and his uh, cohort have redesigned the company from a place of trust. And they basically, they started with this uh, questioning of an assumption, which, which goes something like this. Why do we take people who are fully functioning adults in the rest of the realms of their life and treat them like absolute children when they come into work? Yeah? And you know, those of us who've worked in corporate life experience this in very niggling ways every day. Your passport gets locked out. You're suddenly reduced to the role of an infant in answering all these questions to get back into the system. All sorts of rules and regulations are there in place that you look at them and you go, the assumption behind these is like, I don't know anything. I cannot be trusted. And that's why all these rules and regulations are in place. In fact, uh, to be deliberately provocative, and I might be overextending, the entire compliance regime is based on this assumption that people cannot be trusted. And you're talking about fully functioning adults, that their spouses trust them with their families, the children trust them with their 
you know, and on and on. So Ricardo started with that contrast, saying there's something wrong in our systems if we're designing from a place of distrust. And so it, it's a slow evolution, but I think it's proceeded at a remarkable place, uh, pace as well. The company where it stands now works like this. There is no human resources department. All hiring and firing is done by consensus. There are no mandatory meetings. If people don't show up, the convener of the meeting takes that as a sign that the meeting is not interesting or the topic shouldn't be pursued. Um, everybody sets their own salaries, which are posted on a common site for everyone to see. So this sort of brings up the usual questions that I get, or probably Ricardo gets when he's talking about this. Oh my God, aren't you opening yourself up to absolute anarchy? Aren't people going to take advantage of the system? Lo and behold, the company has been running this way for about a decade. It's not small, or at least not as small as you'd expect. It's about 3,000 to 4,000 people strong. And they've diversified into an incredible array of industries that have nothing to do with where they started as a shipbuilding firm. Um, so these are sort of, and I've given you just a flavor of how Semco is run, but I think people will see the point that it's designed from a completely different set of assumptions than most, most companies operate on. So that's my example. As to how this could apply to the beverage industry, Amy, this is where I might take it in a slightly different direction in the sense that I see this issue of designing from trust, especially when it comes to people issues, as going beyond one industry and covering a whole spate of corporate workings. And what I mean by that is I'm very excited about having a different kind of productivity conversation. And I'll give you a couple of statistics to background that. Well, one's a statistic and one's just a phenomenon, I think. One, the statistic I'm referring to is Gallup, one of the most respected polling organizations, does a poll, I think, every year or every two years about the state of employee engagement within companies. And they do this globally across companies of all sizes. Their report that came out last year, and I don't want to quote ex the exact statistics, but I don't have them in front of me. But it was something like globally in big companies, the level of engagement employees was less than a third. Less than a third of employees were fully engaged in their work. And the report almost went on to say there's a, there's a small slice of that who are so negatively engaged that it makes financial sense for the company to pay these people not to come to work because their negative engagement is so contagious in a sense. So that's the kind of world we operate in. And I'm not sure all the companies or the leaders are picking up on this because their formal mechanisms are so outdated. I just responded to a you know, organizational health survey a couple of days ago, and there was an open comment section at the end, and this is what I wrote in. I said, the whole idea of using a, this kind of a survey to measure people's sentiment about what it's like to work for the company, their sentiment about leaders, is so not only outdated, but just ineffective. It's been proved useless, almost. And I added saying, this is not a radical or a fringe view. It, it was on the front page of the business section of the New York Times just about a few weeks ago. Um, so I, I feel like having a different kind of productivity conversation to anybody that would listen, which says that right now the way companies measure productivity is very numerical. You know, number of hours work, head count. You multiply one by the other, and you have some measure of productivity. What if we asked a different question? You say, Amy is working for company X. What percentage of Amy's human potential is the company really tapping into? And I bet you the numbers would be atrocious. I mean, in my own case, I would say despite all of the excitement I feel 
about working in the company, the company probably taps into less than a third of my human potential or what I'm capable of doing. Now, there's very different reasons for that. But if we started to create systems to tap into this human potential, I guarantee you they have to be designed from a very different place. And I guarantee you it will have to be designed from a place of trusting employees to do the right thing and not having all these sorts of compliance mechanisms to ensure that they do. So, so you're really focused when you talk about this designing for trust on on human potential, which is HR, I would say. But it's yeah. so many different areas, and um, I, I guess well, my question is, as, as director of foresight, you must grapple with some of the biggest sustainability issues facing your industry. So, um, I, you know, in terms of not just human. Well, I guess human potential not just for the employees, but for your customers and all the all the stakeholders that your industry impacts. Um, I'd like to ask your thoughts on foresight on a couple of them. So, for example, I know Pepsi has done work um, around water issues. How about the issue of safe and plentiful drinking water as a human right? Is is that a question that you're grappling with? Yeah, I mean, you're sort of speaking to something that's dear to my heart as well as the company's heart, which goes a little way towards explaining the synchrony of aims that I referred to earlier. Let me just backtrack one second, Amy. When I when I spoke about this human potential and designing from trust in the HR realm, if you will, it wasn't to the exclusion of other things. It was more of a perspective, again, any of you in listening that have been through Hunter's class or are familiar with the systems approach, uh, to any topic, will recognize that what I'm looking for is basically a point of leverage. So we know all of these problems are very wicked problems. The, the one you brought up around obesity and what the company sells and the issues around junk food. Water is another one. Uh, all of these are intertwined, and they're all what people have started referring to as wicked problems. And I think the critical question that some of us are engaged in is finding out what are the points in the system that make sense to intervene in such a wicked problem? Because very often you're stumped by where do I start? And my answer to that, right or wrong, and I, I welcome debate on this, is to point to the people who are working within the system and trying to get their level of awareness or consciousness to a different level, out of which I think the solutions to all the other problems that we're facing will flow. So I, I just wanted to mention that. In terms of water, wow, talk about a tricky situation. So you, in, in a few conversations that we've had, you, you've mentioned this idea of water is a human right according to a UN declaration. And PepsiCo was one of the first companies of its size to sign on as an endorser saying, yes, we believe this as well. And, and what I'm going to say is not a criticism either of the UN or on PepsiCo. But in general, I'm fascinated by these very abstract concepts uh, like human rights, for example, or the human right to water, primarily because they lack any sort, even a sniff of something that would come close to an enforcement mechanism or accountability. So all these things sort of float in the ether. Human rights, just to draw an analogy, being one, I mean, I think the history of human rights, especially if you look at it from my perspective as coming from a third world country, is fraught with so many inconsistencies and frankly outright abuses that I don't really hold much stock in that whole concept anymore. Not that I'm not in favor of human beings' rights, but this particular mechanism of defining rights, they're always defined from a certain group's point of view, so enforcement becomes very selective, and there's a whole history of this. The International Criminal Court has been active for about six years, and you will notice that the only people who've come up before it are all Africans. Now, 
I'm not I'm not in support of these people who've been pulled out, but there's so many other people who've done equally or more horrendous things that are that won't even see a date in court, leave alone being uh, apprehended. So, I sorry I went off on a bit of a rant there. But when it comes to water, the need that I see is and where I think frankly PepsiCo could lead. Um, is to pull together people, stakeholders in common parlance, and build true consensus. Yeah, I've been talking to uh, a group called the Consensus Building Institute that's based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, led by a guy named Larry Suskin, who has appointments at Harvard Law School, at Tufts, and also at MIT. And they've come up with this really interesting approach, I think, of how in, in a in an arena of wicked problems, when all the stakeholders have very different points of view, how do you build true consensus? This touches a bit on a trust as well. And I'm fascinated by their work primarily because of their successes. So Larry has an informal moniker of being the world's water diplomat because most of his work is in mediating water disputes. And I think especially when we talk about uh, water in problematic areas like the megacities that are cropping up, uh, in the world at alarming speed. I, I feel there's a real need, I mean that's obvious, but also a real business opportunity for companies that have a lot to say about water, a lot of expertise in being stewards of water within their own smaller realms of trying to share those capabilities uh, with the rest of the world, also exchange knowledge and information and lots of other things with other stakeholders in a way that's profitable for sure, but also is not exploitative. You know, so that's that's something I'm passionate about. This sort of consensus building approaches on water. And you mentioned, you know, that the African leaders are the ones being prosecuted um, for human rights, and also in terms of water. Uh, I have a friend, from Chad, who is in this country now, trying to find enterprising people uh, who can help her bring water to the villagers in Chad, who have to walk many, many kilometers just. To you know, it takes them half a day just to get drinking water there. So, um, you know, that's why I ask about it as a human right. And in terms of, you know, the beverage industry, um, you know, I wonder if they have a role to play in that. And, um, you know, you may have more to say about that, but I, I just wanted to go on to say that it's it's been 10 years since I was moved to make my film, which was based on the CDC reports of declining children's health. So now that there is overwhelming scientific evidence that the soda industry is one of the major causes of the childhood obesity epidemic, you know, do you have a team of foresight engineers working with you on this issue? Like, have you considered what the industry might be like if it were held accountable for those externalized healthcare costs? Is there consensus building around this with the industry? Like, is there an opportunity there? I guess that's what I'm asking. So. Uh, I'll respond in two parts. This might look like a dodge, but I will defer the first part of the question as to what the company is doing or the industry is doing. There are many uh, public public reports and public pronouncements and public news items, I think, that talk about the industry coming together to do something about this. Now, I think reasonable people will always quarrel about, is that enough? At what speed uh, is it proceeding? Is it equal to the scale of the problem? Uh, is it is it more of a, a is it more of a dodge than the sincere effort? And I think there could be a reasonable debate around this. But I'll tell you a little bit of what I'm focused on. I it's very hard to do in a radio interview, but I have this uh, not a metaphor. It's actually a, a grounding framework in foresights, which talks about in times of transition, 
there is a paradigm that, um, how do you call it, that has been incumbent for quite a while. In our case, let's take it as the industrial paradigm. For 200 years, it has, it's had its run, yeah, with all the externalities and the invisible stuff that people haven't been considering. Now that, it, I think it should be consensus by now, there will always be holdouts, that that system is in decline. Now, I think a lot of the efforts that you're referring to or asking me about, which I don't have enough expertise to speak on, but I'll make a general comment, I, I personally don't think they will be enough. They're, they're in the right direction. As Hunter likes to point out, we need those because they, will, they are what will buy us time for the rest of the people who are trying to develop completely new offerings and paradigms. Uh, we need to buy time because the world's changing at quite an alarming pace, I think. So I don't want to discount those efforts, but I personally, I'm focused and foresight as a discipline is focused on how do you balance those sorts of activities which are just trying I shouldn't say just, which are trying to adjust the previous paradigm, make it less harmful, uh, try to slow down the pace at which it is deteriorating, et cetera, et cetera. But what about maybe the transformation is in an entirely different curve that's well outside all of these efforts, and I'm very curious and passionate about what those things might look like. In terms of the direct problem you're asking me about, uh, I have this thought that for confidentiality reasons, I'll be cryptic about in terms of not mentioning what brands exactly. But I will use a quote from Marshall McLuhan, which points the way forward towards a new kind of uh, opportunistic thinking, if you will. And his quote, and this was from 50 years ago, it's a testament to how prescient this guy was. And he said something like, we're headed into a future, especially in advertising, where all the pleasures of consumption will be derived informationally from the ad itself and the product will just be a mere number in a file. That's, that's been a very inspiring quote to me in terms of thinking about new business opportunities. And I'll leave it at there because I think people can follow that thought towards where some of the opportunities might lie for a company like PepsiCo. That's, that's a fabulous quote, and, and it's really about creating whole new paradigms. And I, I think at this point in our conversation, we should open up to the, the call to see if there are any people listening in who have questions or have a new paradigm that they'd like to put out there. Here, here. We've already said too much. <laughs> no, it's been a really fascinating conversation. Everyone who's on the line, thanks so much for being here. Um, so if you do have a question for, for Manoj, please speak up. Just unmute your line and ask a question. There's no raising hands function or anything here, so don't be shy. I'll jump in. Hi, my name is uh, Mariana Souza. I'm also a second year student with Amy. Thanks for being with us again. It's great, as always. Um, I'm wondering about, when, when you're talking about this sort of, this new paradigm of thinking, but you're in the context of working with business, which is a bit different from, I think, the, the sort of traditional sources of information that you would go to for people that were talking about changing the paradigm. Like, where do you find your cohort now? You're talking about a paradigm which doesn't necessarily need to, you know, break down the system, but use all of the benefits that the big system has to modify into something that is more livable and more sustainable. So I'm just wondering, like, sources, professional networks, um, books, conferences, physical locations, is that other, do other companies also have people like you who you can all sort of get together and convene to talk about these things? I want to say yes, yes, and yes, and yes, but <laughs> let me let me expand on that fascinating question. By the way, I will 
I will play you back a conversation I, or bits of a conversation I had with Hunter. That's been extremely useful in terms of orienting myself. I think I was already doing these things, but I didn't have a good label for where I'm located. And the conversation we had was around ecologists primarily asking the question of where is nature most innovative? And I, I will say whenever I talk about nature, I'm including us as well because there is this paradigm. Well, I keep using the word paradigms too much. There is when I, Whenever I heard nature being referenced, it's almost to the exclusion of human beings and somehow we've separated ourselves from nature. So when I say nature, I mean us as well. Uh, and Hunter, to paraphrase, was telling me, well, Nature is most innovative in what she calls edge ecosystems, the ecosystems that are at the edge of two. So marshes are a good example where the river ecosystem meets the marine ecosystem, or the edges where the meadow meets the forest, or the, or the edges of the field meet the next field. You know? So I've been fascinated by that as a metaphor. I think it captures what I'm trying to do, which is have one foot within the company and its orbit, but have one foot outside. And to your question about are there other people like me, absolutely. Uh, it's a small vanguard. I'll, I'll mention my association with the Aspen Institute. I'm part of a fellowship program that's called the First Movers Program. And it's almost explicitly designed for people like me who have a contrarian point of view currently within companies, but also represent the ways forward for some of those companies. So the Aspen Institute tries to bring us together as a cohort and give us you know, very practical tools on how to navigate these conversations. Because there are no there's no textbook for this yet, and I doubt if there will ever be one. You know, these are times of transition for a reason. So in a world where everybody's trying to make their own approach towards navigating this change, I think there are more and more efforts like this. A lot of the, uh, how do you call them, WeWork is a great example in the city. I, I'm forgetting the label for the co-working spaces. A lot of those places are creating a very interesting ecosystem, I think. Some of the people who visit there are not completely autonomous operators. There might be people from smaller companies who work out of there because they're lacking space. That's their point of entry. But when you interact with that ecosystem of all the other people who are working around you and you find commonalities, I think those are the kinds of platforms that will push forward this cohort of people who are trying to change stuff. Thank you. I do. I have a little bit of a follow-up to that because I'm I'm wondering for myself personally um, how to navigate the transition from like sort of traditional cranky greenie to being someone who decided to get my MBA and work with big business and you know figure out ways that are actually going to work. And I'm experiencing some challenges from my friends and cohort who knew me in a different light and think that I've done something wrong or that mm. I'm disillusioned. And like, how do you bring along all of these people who are passionate about the same things as you, but maybe disagree with your methods? Oh, that's, that's a good follow-up as well. Um, pardon me in advance if I don't answer your question right on the nose. But no, this is a tension I've been through as well, so it resonates, and I have a lot of empathy for that. I think personally, I came to the realization that where you are doesn't matter as much as what you're trying to do. And I, and I don't want to extend that to such an overall point that it loses meaning. I mean, some places where you are does matter. But within a, within a company, like I'll, I'll refer back to the statement I made about the nature of evil before. I, I came into corporations uh, you know, with a set 
point of view on what corporations stood for, and I still believe in a lot of that. I think the corporations as a form have deviated a lot from the purposes from which they were created, and you know that's for another conversation. But when you find yourself in a place like that, I think you ask yourself the question of, is what I'm trying to do still meaningful to me, and is there, practically speaking, is there a chance of making a better impact on the world through this portal? or this thing. And that's calmed me down a lot in terms of my own personal conflict. And I think that rubs off on the people you interact with, you know, when they hear you talk about, when they hear you acknowledge the tension, I think that goes a long way, because you're not coming across as some people who is blasé about this tension. You acknowledge it as a real tension in the world. And then you, then you expand on that by saying, this is my solution as an individual. Um, it can extend out to larger cohorts of people, et cetera, et cetera. But this is where I am right now. And I think the other part that's really interesting is to acknowledge ourselves as human beings who evolve. You know, so five years down the line, I might think slightly differently about it, or very differently. And I think that's actually the mark of an intelligent person who is responding to circumstances as they change. So somewhere between those two thoughts, I think the beginnings of an answer to people who sort of question our motives and our principles based on where we are and what we do. Thank you. Great. Thanks so much, Mariana. If there's some other folks on the line who want to ask a question, now's a great time to do it. Don't be shy. This is Gwen. Um, I'm in the C4 um, cohort as a part-timer. And I wanted to ask a question about paradigms, the the term comes up again and again, and I'm interested specifically within a corporate environment, what mechanisms do you employ and with whom in functional areas do you work in order to get to an entirely new paradigm? One of the things I often think about in these conversations, I don't know whether you're familiar with Thomas Kuhn, and his yes. structure of scientific revolutions. But yes. a lot of what he, I, I'm a big fan, first of all, but secondly, you know, he's often talking about science and how the old paradigms break because there are problems they can't solve or um, questions they can't answer. Um, is that sort of approach something that you would use with, your colleagues, say, in the research and development department or someone who's in charge of process redesign? I mean, that sort of constant asking of the questions, which you referred to earlier as, as so critical. Hmm. Uh, by the way, we, we share our, uh, our enthusiasm and respect for Thomas Kuhn. I, I actually found that a very sobering read and, and yeah. it helped me a lot in terms of... Uh, having the right kinds of expectations and not getting too ahead of ourselves and getting too excited, you know. But to answer your question, I don't think I'm, I'm not organized enough, so I don't have a method per se, but maybe that is a method in itself to be very opportunistic in that, in that sense, and I'll, and I'll tell you concretely what I mean by that. So in terms of the departmental stuff, I haven't found concrete uh, differences in receptivity to the new paradigm by function. So it's not that, oh, R&D is more receptive or X innovation is more receptive and the finance people are not, for example. I haven't found that. What mm -hmm. I've found, and I hate to generalize, but I will just to give you a flavor of it, there's, there's uh, generational differences, for example, and this is, this is very unfair to the people, generations before us who are also thinking the same way. But generally speaking, 
you know, you, you can see the logic behind this. The previous generations, one, are very vested in the current system because that's, one, that's something that they've known all their lives and embraced and they're part of the, the pedagogy and the ideologies of that paradigm. So to ask them to rethink their whole lives, in effect, is a little too much to ask. I feel, I feel uh, shy is not the right word, but I feel a certain deference to the lives that these people have led and their, the arc of their careers. But when it comes to the millennials, just to bring it back to what is a favorite topic of lots of people right now, I find lots of grounds for hope. I think the way they see work itself is very different. They're not subject to the same pressures because of where they are in their lives, although student debt might have something to say about that. Um, and I find a certain degree of freedom in sort of orienting themselves, even though they're within the same mammoth institution. So that's one point of hope. Secondly, I think these informal ways of working, and they're informal right now because there's no formal system. Part of my work is to try and formalize some of these things, which is why should, and there are software platforms coming up to enable this, where they're talking about why shouldn't we have something like dating algorithms for people at work who want to find each other with similar passions and complementary capabilities to form almost like self-forming teams that can go after some of these challenges in the new paradigm that the that the the heart of the company that's working on, as somebody said, keeping the trains running on time, is not just equipped to do it. It's not that those people don't want to do it sometimes or not aware of the problem. It's just that the way their job is structured gets in the way of them doing anything else. So I've been, in my work, kind of on the hunt for people who, in the beginning, it will be sort of above and beyond work. Right? So they have their day jobs and they'll do this almost as a side project. But you're realizing more and more, and the tech industry is a good example of this, all the hackathons that people are holding and all the quote-unquote extracurricular activities are the ones that are leading to breakthroughs. So I think a lot of leaders in R&D, and our company is an example of that, Dr. Mahmoud Khan, who is our chief of R&D, very much recognizes that. Of, uh, again, this is an element of freeing up people, give them a challenge, but free them up. Don't tell them how to attack it. And you'll be surprised at the kinds of innovative breakthrough approaches that can come from this sort of informal collaboration. And I stress that it's informal now. Maybe a better label for it is informal because it's not the current formal system. But it can be a formal system in its own way. It's just maybe too early to tell. Thanks very much. I love that idea of hackathons and the posing of challenges specifically to problems that appear unsolvable and you know, getting people at all levels and all locations um, with very different points of view to participate in that conversation. So thank yeah. you. Yeah, and I'll refer you, Gwen, to a very interesting, I think they're still in startup mode. It's an outfit called Rally Team, R-A-L-L-Y. And uh -huh. it's it started by a guy who came from Microsoft. And his experience at trying to get people engaged in Microsoft at the time when they were losing a lot of people to the cooler tech outfits like Facebook and LinkedIn and Google and what have you. That's, that's helped him start this company. And he describes it very shortly as eHarmony for work, which is where I got that metaphor from. And he's come up with this really interesting software platform where he goes, look, if you break down a certain challenge into constituent projects or tasks, and on the other hand, you're creating an inventory of what are people passionate about, which normally doesn't appear in any of the official HR records, right? And that's mm -hmm. his greatest breakthrough, I think. If you have these two data points, it's very easy to write the algorithm to match that up. Right. So that's, what, that's what his team is trying to do. You know, there, I'm sure you're aware there are a lot of other um, 
companies that are supporting that kind of activity, and, and those are often used as part of a hiring process. So, you know, if you can demonstrate that you were able to solve a problem and create a solution, you're a more attractive candidate. Mm-hmm. Great. Well, this is Stephanie again, and I realize we're, we're approaching 1 p.m. soon. So, Amy, do you have some questions you still want to ask, or should we leave the line open for more here from our listeners? I have, like, other questions, but I think this is its much more interesting to hear what everybody else has to say, so I'd love to hear from other listeners if somebody else wants to jump in. Great. So the floor is still open. Uh, we have time for one or two more questions. Okay, well, if, if nobody's ready to jump in, I will ask one more, and then, um, you know, maybe we'll have time for someone else to ask a follow-up, but um, I, I think this is just really fascinating, this concept of transforming the level of consciousness of people within a company and then uh, in society in general. And I'm wondering, Manoj, if you have thoughts on how can powerful forces like marketing and lobbying, which you know, we traditionally think of as kind of one-way forces being generated from a company to impact consumers and voters, et cetera. How can these forces be harnessed to either create new paradigms or to dis- to turn destructive industry practices into what, as you say, are net assets for society? Mm-hmm. Wow. I'm... I'm uh awestruck by the the intelligence behind all of these questions and just this conversation in general. Um, hmm. some, some of, well, first I'll say that it is a bit of a remedial problem in the sense that you'd hope the educational system would have taken care of people's level of awareness and consciousness, but sadly it hasn't, which is an indictment of another big social institution in our times. And um, I don't know, maybe maybe a part of it is sort of like figuring out how do we educate people so that people like me or other people don't have to run around companies trying to transform consciousness. It already is there kind of a thing. Uh, the second thing I will say is that's also a bit unfair because I've found in my experience a lot of people with the potential to move to a different level of awareness that simply lack the facilitating mechanisms. And at this point, I will insert a brief plug for a program a small group of friends, including myself, helped create at PepsiCo uh, called Pepsi Core. It's patterned after the Peace Corps. And, you know, it's it's a fascinating program in that it works at so many levels. So HR sees it as an alternative way to develop talent, complementary to the other approaches, which is great. Uh, the citizenship uh, people at the company, which includes the foundation, they're actually running the program now. They see it as a logical extension of the company's efforts to be better citizens as a, as a corporate entity. I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about our motivations. So it was a group of six people who were very junior in the company at that point. I think the average age was around 25 or something. We had a chance to meet with the CEO in a very open conversation. The agenda was dictated by us. Um, and we were sort of wondering, the question we asked Indra was, Indra, you've 
held up performance with purpose as sort of a credo for the company as, a, as an orientation. At our levels in the company, and this is dating back five or six years ago, we were telling her, we don't see that many opportunities to get involved in this agenda. We are very attracted to this agenda, all other things being equal. This might be a differentiator for the company and the reason why we're all here. But we're struggling for things to do day in and day out that reflect this orientation. Her answer surprised us. She turned it back on us and said, what are the kinds of things that you would like to do? So long story short, we came up with some proposals. Pepsi Corps was one of them. And she was uh, beyond supportive, I think. I mean, the program exists because she not only gave the green light and paid for it and all of that, but also put the weight of her office and her personal charisma behind it. So it's a very successful program now. Our motivation was creating it was precisely what I was talking about to say. And the program basically operates like this. You you form teams of eight or so people. It's a competitive application process. And you send them out to, we've sent people to a village in Ghana, to places in rural Brazil, to a Native American reservation just outside of Albuquerque, to India, to, to lots of places. I think there's a team currently going out to Indonesia. And, and they work on projects around clean water or sustainable agriculture and nutrition. And what we hope is they are helping those communities. We're very... Uh, conscious about not over-promising. There's only so much that can be done in a month. So it's more of some fact-finding, applying our managerial skills to develop thoughts towards the solution and also a little bit of training the trainer. But we were very focused on the transformative effect that has on the people who go there. And to a person, you'll find these people coming back saying, wow, this changed my life. And I personally, and I think my friends who started the program shared this, really interesting question around, hmm, what are these people who are going to come, who come back going to do in the company for the rest of their careers? And that's been a fascinating question for me. So I think those sorts of uh, mechanisms and platforms are what more, more of them are needed. I think people are hungry for a change in transformation, but it's not like you can go back to school to do this. You know? you, you're juggling with the current state of things as well. So the more companies create avenues and mechanisms for this uh, flowering of a new consciousness to take place, I think they'll stand the world in good stead. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on. And just in this last minute, I want to circle the conversation back to where we started, which was with your disillusioning formative experiences in the advertising world and then in academia. And I'll, I'll tip my hat to Bard's program and say that I, I think um, we're really, you know, trying, trying to ask some of those big questions here. And so my final question to you, and you answered this in part um, with, uh, with Mariana, but do you have something you'd like to add in terms of advice, particularly to uh, my fellow MBA students and grads who are asking these big questions around sustainable business? Ah, I, I hate giving out advice. <laughs> well, let me see if I have a few things to share. Um, the state, how do I phrase this? The state uh, our mental states with, or emotional states with respect to this issue are extremely variable, I think. I mean, I'm speaking from personal experience. And what I've found is there is, no, there is no right state of the world that we ought to respond to. It's all a matter of perception in some sense. And I don't mean this to say, oh, it's, it's whatever you make, it, make of it. I'm not willing to go that far. But I think what I'm suggesting is uh, if you find yourself being unpopular, don't 
don't take the situation that you're in as a fact or a given. I think you'll be really surprised about how popular you are or quickly can become. If you find a different circle to move in or find a different cohort um, of people you're surrounded by, maybe you just haven't found them. So if you find yourself despairing because, like, God, there's not enough people thinking about change the same way as I am or even thinking about change in general, it's probably a function of where you are and where you're looking rather than the state of the world in some sense. I, I don't know if that qualifies as sage advice, but that's that's what I have to say. And it also, I'll, I'll maybe end my part of this with that. Paul Hawken has written a very beautiful book about it, right? And I think he calls it something else, majority. But he goes, you know, people discount the fact that there are thousands and millions, probably even around 2 billion people, I think was his uh, rough estimate, working on social change, uh, perfectly in line with all our values, you know, on this call. We just haven't found each other. Uh, for a, so for a movement that large, it's both a strength and a weakness. It's a strength that there are so many of us. But it's maybe a weakness that we're all not uh, more coordinated. I don't want to say we should be perfectly coordinated. Maybe that's impossible and there's some advantages to not being coordinated. But we could be more coordinated and we could do better at finding each other. Um, so I hope that I'll, I'll leave you all with that thought. That, that's a really great ending. Um, there is some kind of quote about you're never a hero in your own hometown, which somebody once quoted to me. That's really true. You do have to kind of step out and find those people. Um, and Blessed Unrest is the Paul Hawken book, which was a huge influence. So, thank you, Amy. Yes, that's it. I want to thank Bless you so much for, for sharing all of these really thought-provoking concepts with us today. And um, it's been a wonderful conversation. I, I hope to continue it offline with you and with some of my classmates. And Stephanie, I will turn it all back over to you. Yes, thank you so much, Amy and Manoj. This, I mean, I really feel like this conversation can go on for hours, and it's been such a pleasure being a part of this. And thank you so much to both of you for all of what you've shared with us today and for the questions on the line. And I just want to tell everyone who's left on the call that we will uh, return here on Friday, September 25th at noon for a conversation with Catherine Shahi, who is the program manager of UL Environment. Mariana Saza, who asked a question, will be leading that conversation. So it will be a really great one, and I'm really looking forward to it. So just thank you all so much for being part of today's conversation. We do convene, you know, twice a month, the first and fourth Fridays of the month. Most, you know, that's what we usually do. So do continue to be part of us. Even if you're not part of the BART MBA program, you are more than welcome to be part of this conversation because you are probably people we should know. And uh, don't hesitate to reach out to us. So everyone have a great weekend and a big thank you to Manoj and Amy. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Stephanie. On, on my behalf, um, I want to extend a thanks on behalf of the whole BART community for giving me uh, a place to feel comfortable, a place to be myself, a place to be open. It's been really encouraging and stimulating, and I thank you all. Thanks. Oh, yeah, thank you so much. We'll see you soon.